This is Speaking Freely with the ACLU of Pennsylvania, the podcast that tells the story of civil liberties. I'm Andy Hoover, your host and director of communications at the ACLU of PA. It is nearly the end of 2018, and what better way to wrap up the year than to sit down with Reggie Schufert, executive director of the ACLU of Pennsylvania. In this discussion, Reggie and I look back on the year in civil liberties, take a peek into what will be ahead in 2019, and he shares his reflections on his career as a civil rights advocate. As you think about your year-end giving, we hope you'll consider giving to the ACLU. Because you're listening to this podcast, chances are that you care deeply about the world we live in. And because of that, I know that there are many, many organizations to support. Personally, I cannot support as many organizations as I would like. But here at the ACLU, we hope we make your nice list. Your financial donations support the incredible work we're doing here in Pennsylvania and around the country. You can support us by going to aclupa.org join. All right, that's my pitch. Let's talk with Reggie Shuford. Well, Reggie, we are 17 episodes into the podcast and you are making your debut. I know you are a listener of the podcast and now you get to be a guest. So thanks for taking the time and uh, the chance to look back on 2018. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. I'm a listener, but I'm also a fan. I think you do a really great job. <laughs> thanks. So um, let's just start with a very open-ended question. What do you think are the most significant achievements in civil liberties in Pennsylvania in 2018? There have been many, not a lot of kind of flashy things, but many that um, really significantly impact and improve the lives of people across the Commonwealth. So I'm going to put those in buckets, if you don't mind. Mm -hmm. Um, And the first bucket is legislative. I'm going to talk about two pieces of legislation um, that positively impact people after they have been incarcerated. Um, So clean, clean slate, for example, with clean slate, certain criminal records will be sealed from public view after 10 years without another conviction, which is hugely important for people who are trying to return um, to society, be productive citizens, seek meaningful employment, be um, contributing members to their families and to their communities. So Clean Slate, I think, is a big deal. It has a lot of positive potential. Another um, has to do with a really punitive law that was passed, I think, in the early 90s when the war on drugs was in full swing and people were being really punitive, including politicians, tough on crime, etc. So what this law does is ends the suspension of people's driver's license for offenses unrelated to driving, which affects more than 20,000 people per year. So that itself is also huge. So I'm really happy about those pieces of legislation. Uh, another thing is not what happened, but is what did not happen is that the legislature legislature did not take up the issue of mandatory minimums, which was outlawed by the courts several years ago. Um, And because this legislature didn't take it up, um, we don't have mandatory minimums in Pennsylvania, which is also a good thing. So the second bucket is legal. And I'm just going to talk about just a couple of cases, um, both of which actually involve um, litigation advancing LGBT equality. The first case is Boyertown 
in which we argued for the school um, to be able to continue its practice of respecting students' gender identity. And um, they were actually doing the right thing. Yeah. Um, you know, often the ACLU is suing the government for doing the wrong thing, but <laughs> the Boyertown School District was doing the right thing. Um, and so we intervened to support um, their right to continue to do so. Uh, that was appealed. Uh, we received a favorable decision uh, in the Third Circuit Court of Appeals. <clears throat> Excuse me, the second case also involving LGBT equality is also in support of the, the city of Philadelphia doing the right thing, which was uh, defending its policy prohibiting discrimination in foster care. A religious agency sued the city because the city said, we will not allow you to place foster kids and families if you have this discriminatory policy against LGBT families. Um, and so we argued that case also in the Third Circuit um, and are awaiting um, a ruling. And so the third bucket then is, yeah. is, yeah. A, is advocacy. And so people may know of this, um, certainly folks in, in Philadelphia, but um, we did a, a, a big kind of campaign um, in the Philly DA's race um, last year. And ended, that ended with uh, the election of Larry Krasner. Now, we weren't involved in electing the candidate, but what we were involved in was the, the concept of prosecutorial accountability, right? Mm -hmm. Making sure that DAs who have so much power in communities are accountable to their constituents. Mm -hmm. And so for that campaign, we wanted to inject all of, you know, as much information as we could and discussion as we could into the campaign about being smart on crime, uh, criminal justice reform, uh, transparency, um, and making sure that we weren't gonna have the same old, same old in terms of punitive measures that um, ended up with people being incarcerated who shouldn't be or for, for far too long. Um, Larry Krasner ended up winning that campaign, that election. Um, and, you know, I think of the candidates, he was considered the one who was more the most criminal justice reform friendly. That said, right, we, we need to hold him accountable, right? So do his actions match his campaign promises? Uh, he said a lot of good things about ending cash bail, about not pursuing the death penalty, about reviewing legitimate claims of in innocence. And, you know, if that were to happen, we would be really excited about that. Uh, the question, though, is in the implementation. So we hope uh, that happens, and we'll have to see. I mean, I think there have been some questions about whether the his staff, line prosecutors, actually in court, are pursuing the things that he promised. And mm -hmm. so we're going to wait and see. I'm hopeful and optimistic, but it's, it's too early to tell. Yeah. Um, we also, I've been talking about criminal justice reform a lot. That's, that's um, a huge priority for the ACLU of Pennsylvania. Um, and we launched our campaign for smart justice. So in terms of the advocacy bucket, that's another thing that we're really proud of. Uh, again, part of that focus is on prosecutorial accountability. And so uh, we want people, again, to just to really understand the power of district attorneys in communities, often without transparency or accountability, and, and we're seeking to change that. And so I'm proud of that campaign, too. Other things that we've been working on with some degree of success, including continuing to advocate for students' rights, 
uh, including countering the school to prison pipeline. And in Pittsburgh, for example, we successfully advocated and worked with uh, allies to prevent Pittsburgh from arming uh, its school police officers. And so I think that's a that's a big win. We continue to do great work in our TEEP program, which is our transgender education and advocacy program, um, making sure that trans people and members of the trans community are empowered to speak on their own behalf and have their voices heard. And uh, we're going around the state with that advocacy, and I'm, and I'm very proud of that work. So that's a lot. Um, and, you know, immigration continues to be an issue that we mm-hmm. spend a lot of time on at the national level. Um, it was the ACLU's um, litigation around family separation that kind of um, received so much attention, understandably, given what was at stake. Uh, more locally, closer to home, uh, we keep hearing stuff about um, the Pennsylvania State Police targeting folks and how active ICE is and working, the two of them working together. And so we're concerned about that and we're, we're going to see what happens um, and whether, you know, an intervention of some sort by us will be necessary to, to take that on. So that's a mouthful, <laughs> but because we are as busy as we've ever been. Yeah, that is a lot. Um, just in a 12-month period. I mean, obviously, those issues are not isolated to what the last 12 months. Um, But I do want to ask you about something that's been going on for much longer than 12 months. And we're going to talk about Philadelphia, but it's not, I'm sure this is not an isolated problem in Philadelphia. And that's the issue of stop and frisk, Um, and particularly the aggressive use of stop and frisk and the racial disparities in its use. So we have this case, we call it the shorthand around here is Bailey based on the lead plaintiff. plaintiff. Um, The case is eight years old. Um, We sued the city of Philadelphia in 2010. Um, because they were using stop and frisk in a way that was both unconstitutional. Well, it was unconstitutional a couple ways. One, stopping people with no justification. And two, disproportionately um, stopping and frisking people of color. The city agreed to a consent decree in 2011, and since then we collectively, the the plaintiffs and and the city, have been implementing the consent decree. Um, And the data, which we just released uh, in November, shows several phenomena. One, stops are down, which is good. Um, good That's that's significant. Stops without legal justification are down, but it's still impacting thousands of people every year. And three, racial disparities are as as entrenched as they've ever been. I want to ask you about this, and I know you're a lawyer. Um, <laughs> some people listening to this may know you're a lawyer. Um, I can't help it. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> but if, if you can, if you can resist the lawyerly urge to put yeah, aside the legal arguments for a moment. <laughs> um, you have written about being stopped by the police, um, and I would like to hear your thoughts and your reflections on why it is so important for the Kenny administration or whoever comes after Mayor Kenny, hopefully we resolve it within his administration, um, but why it matters so much that the Philadelphia Police Department and the Kenny administration get this right. So you're right. Um, I have been involved with this issue uh, for a long time as a lawyer. I will admit that I did some racial profiling litigation years ago for the National ACLU. But it's really personal to me. So, um, yeah, you've acknowledged that I've written about having been stopped myself. Um, most recently was when I was home, where I'm from, visiting 
uh, friends and family uh, in, in uh, Wilmington, North Carolina, um, but certainly beyond North Carolina. I mean, even when I was moving here from California to mm-hmm. take this job, yeah. I was stopped in both Michigan and Ohio. Mm-hmm. So I've been subjected to uh, traffic stops, pedestrian stops. So I think it happens really wherever there are black people and wherever there are law enforcement. So I think that's the reality of how pervasive this phenomenon is. And so why it's important for Kenny, Kenny and other mayors and police departments to get it right, it's, it's the, first of all, it's the right thing to do. It is what is fair. It is what is just when you treat people, when you enforce the laws in ways that are not biased. Uh, it's about the ability to be a first-class citizen versus a second-class citizen. Uh, it's about the ability to trust law enforcement or to live in fear of them because you don't know what's going to happen. Mm-hmm. It's about trust or the lack of trust uh, with uh, officers who've sworn to uphold the law and to protect everyone. That's about living a life with dignity and not being afraid that it can be cut short because of an encounter with the police department. So it's about life and death for some people. And um, as much as I applaud uh, some of the progress in terms of fewer stops and even fewer stops without legal justification, the most recent data indicate that still 6,000 of those stops are being made without legal justification. To me, that's 6,000 too many, right? That was over a six-month period, I believe. Because nobody should be stopped without legal justification. And, And to the extent that the racial disparity remains, well, then that's, that's completely unacceptable. Mm-hmm. Law enforcement can do its job without being racially biased. They have to. And until they do that, then I think I, again, from a personal perspective, but also as a part of the ACLU of Pennsylvania, are going to be continued in the fight to make sure that policing that happens in Philadelphia and Pittsburgh, throughout the Commonwealth, uh, is done in a way that respects everybody's dignity and doesn't target certain people and benefit other people. So that's why I think it's important. It's about human dignity um, and equality and opportunity and at the end of the day, just doing the right thing. So you mentioned some of your own experiences, both professionally and personally. I know some things about your personal bio, at least broad strokes, but most people listening to this probably do not. Um, So I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit um, about your experiences and how you ended up here. You've you've been at this a long time. As you said, you were a litigator in our national office. Uh, You've been an executive director now for seven years. Why are you doing this? How did you end up here? Man, how much time do we have? <laughs> anyway, I'll try to keep it on the, sh- the short side. And I've, I've talked about some of this more lately in, in speeches and written about it too. But um, it, this is my life calling. It's really clearly my life calling. And that even if I try to do something else, I don't know what it might, what it might be. But um, I'll tell you a story. I, re- I remember from my childhood being really, really inquisitive. Like, I'm kind of shy myself, but I, part of the way that I engage with people is just to find out as much I, as I can about them and ask a lot of questions. So when people would come over to our house, I would, um, 
I would, you know, get them off in the corner or something and just ask them a lot of questions. Like, mm. what's your favorite color? Do you have brothers and sisters? Do you get along with your brothers and sisters? <laughs> I don't always get along with mine. Do you like to read? You know, whatever, like a five-year-old, four-year-old mind could muster, I would ask about. And more than one person said, slow down, kid. You sound like a lawyer asking all these questions. And of course, I had no idea what a lawyer was. But I thought, huh, but I want to be a lawyer then. One day I will be a lawyer. And so I did. I made the decision like around age six to become a lawyer. Wow. No one in my family had been a lawyer. Um, in fact, I, I became the first person in a couple of generations in my family to graduate from high school, let alone go to college and then go to law school. So um, I really didn't know what a lawyer meant. Um, Over time, of course, I learned what lawyers do. And also just given the circumstances of living um, in North Carolina, uh, growing up just just post, integration, um, uh, Wilmington, North Carolina, again, where I'm from, had been reluctant to um, adhere to the Brown v. Board of Education mm-hmm. decision. Um, and took, you know, almost two decades before integrating public schools. And so I started school just after that. And I just experienced, like, diminished expectations from teachers who didn't think a lot of, of a poor black kid like me or other poor black kids. We were bused to school. Uh, my mother was a single parent. She had five kids uh, trying to make ends meet. Uh, you know, we grew up on government assistance, you know, which was really inadequate to really care for, for us. And so I witnessed the struggles of poor people, people of color, single parents, um, how systems and institutions and individuals were disrespectful or disdainful, really did expect the least from from us. And it just struck me as unjust that one's race or marital status or socioeconomic status could could determine one's path, could determine the, the level of opportunity people received or did not receive um, and could determine people's life's chances. And so I, I, I felt that um, injustice really, really viscerally and deeply. And so when I learned that there was such a thing as civil rights law, then I determined that that would be what I would pursue. Um, and so long story short, I never changed my mind about what I wanted to do. And so I was so blessed and fortunate to be able to really, again, without a clear role model or path, chart a course that allowed me to pursue my dreams and my goals with absolute support from my family for whom this path was foreign to, but they knew that those were my dreams and they they wanted to support them. And so I ended up after a stint uh, working for a couple of years in in North Carolina for the Supreme Court of North Carolina and then for a small private law firm, uh, ended up applying for and getting a job at the National ACLU, where as you noted, I I worked for 15 years doing racial justice, racial profiling, national, national security litigation, and then left for a year, but saw 
this job announcement to be executive director of the ACLU of Pennsylvania, applied, they took me, <laughs> and here I am seven years later, uh, still feeling uh, really, really privileged to do this work every day as it harkens back to my childhood dreams and experiences, but also kind of the current manifestations of some of those same issues to be able to come to work every day and do my small part to ensure justice and equality for poor people and people of color and trans people and LGBTQ folks and immigrants and you name it. Um, I see it as a tremendous gift. So over the course of that time, I'm sure you've seen plenty of challenges and setbacks. Uh, what do you consider some of the most significant challenges of being in civil rights advocacy? And I'm, and I'm not going to define challenges necessarily. Okay. If you want, I'll leave that kind of open ended. If you want, you know, if it's issue based or the mechanics of doing this work, sure. you know, what what do you think are the challenges? And as long as you've been at this work, what twenty some years now? Yeah, but the challenges are many, my friend. <laughs> um, and so they're, you know, they, they likewise fall in a couple of buckets. It's the, the logistical kind of way of trying to manage in this particularly fraught time period, as well as kind of the issues themselves, right? And I think part of it has to do with the society that we inhabit. Yeah. Um, and, and the fact, for example, that we have not had the necessary conversations about some of the issues that continue to plague us. And I, and, I, and I mean race specifically. Mm-hmm. We, we have not fully reckoned with what uh, it means to have held and have been a slave-owning, slave-holding um, country and the current manifestations of some of that past. We don't talk about those things. We don't talk about you know, really have a meaningful conversation about racism and Jim Crow and and the new Jim Crow in terms of mass incarceration. And so we don't make serious progress. Progress is certainly incremental. So I acknowledge that today is different from uh, 1900, from 1865, from the 1950s. But some of those dynamics, some of those challenges do persist. And I think we will never really, I think we will continue to make progress. It'll be slow. It'll be incremental. But sometimes it seems like two steps forward, one step back. And so that's a challenge, right? That the really slow kind of slogging kind of nature of plotting nature of the work and the, the, the progress that comes from sort of doing that work every day. And, you know, being in the fight for the long haul. Um, but it's all of that is made much more difficult because there's never been a, a meaningful kind of reckoning with those issues. And, yep. and Brian Stevenson says that we need truth and reconciliation before we can have meaningful progress, particularly in the area of race relations. And so for me, what that means, truth means a truthful acknowledgement and meaningful discussion about about these issues. And so truth and reconciliation are essential, but in that order, truth first, before reconciliation can really happen. And before reconciliation can really happen, meaningful advances that are permanent 
and enduring and sustaining will be hard to achieve. You know, Martin Luther King Jr. said the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends toward justice. And so that's what animates me and motivates me every day. But it's a long, it's a long fight. And I think we, we would all be the better for it if we could have those conversations, no matter how difficult they are. Um, so that's that's kind of the challenge that the work is hard, that it's long, that you don't often you don't always see immediate kind of um, successes. Yeah. Another really kind of for me is just the period that we find ourselves in. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we've always been busy as an institution, um, as an organization, doing you know all the issues that we talked about before. You know, since. The 2016 election is like those issues are on steroids, yeah. right? And again, you know, we are fortunate to be able to come to work every day and to do our part to to resist, you know, the very worst of those violations and civil liberties infringements. What that has meant um, is that we have had to staff up and grow, mm-hmm. uh, which is a a great problem to have, right? So people recognized the, the value of the ACLU in this moment and responded in kind by supporting us, which allowed us to grow and do more work. Um, but ma- but growth has to be managed really care- carefully and thoughtfully. And for me, it's deeply important that, that all of my colleagues come to work and, and love what they do and feel comfortable here and safe and that their voice is heard, that they're valued. Um, and so I, I struggle with making sure that, that that's the reality of our of our environment. And so I take it really seriously. I take it personally. Mm-hmm. Um, and and so it's, it's a challenge because we have the external right work that we're doing. But internally, some of that work is also essential. And, uh, and I want to make sure that we do it right. I want to be fair. I want to be equitable. I want to be um, a place that people... People, I want this office to be a place that people love to come to. So let's look ahead to 2019. I realize predicting what's going to happen in this work can be challenging. It uh, is harder than predicting the weather or who's going to win next week's game. Um, but let's try. So let's take a look at uh, what we think is ahead. From where you sit right now, um, what do you think will be the big debates and struggles and fights in 2019? Do you mind if I do buckets again? Sure, that's okay, fine. Okay, great. That's kind of the way that my mind works. Uh, so let me start with legal this time. Sure. Um, so we have some major uh, lawsuits lined up, including one that we filed within the past couple of weeks uh, on the Pennsylvania Department of Corrections legal mail policy, which just violates um, all kinds of laws, the First Amendment, et cetera. But primarily what it does is DOC staff uh, receives the mail that lawyers are sending their clients, opens that mail, sees that mail, and, you know, the attorney-client relationship is sacrosanct. Mm -hmm. So that's sometimes the only way that lawyers and clients can communicate with each other, strategize about their defense, um, and to the extent that other folks are sometimes that litigation is even against the DOC. And for DOC folks to be able to see that really chills that communication. And so at the end of the day, lawyers are not able to zealously advocate on behalf of their clients. 
Yeah. In fact, um, experts on legal ethics have recommended to lawyers in Pennsylvania to not send mail to their clients that are in DOC facilities. Which is unheard of yeah. um, and really, really completely undermines, again, the lawyer's ability to to adequately represent his, represent his clients. So um, that case is moving along and uh, trial may happen maybe like January. a month, yeah, January, like a month from now. So that's one. We also filed a case on, on voting rights. Um, Pennsylvania has a crazy absentee ballot deadline with a ridiculous short turnaround period. You have to, I believe, um, request a ballot the Tuesday before the election and return it by that Friday, Correct. that's just not enough time. It makes it makes no sense. And so um, we've sued on that, and uh, we're waiting to see how that goes. Recently heard that the Supreme Court of Pennsylvania is taking up the issue of the constitutionality of the death penalty. So that's not our case per se, but we're certainly going to be involved. We're going to do an amicus brief, I believe, and it's a huge deal. Yeah. I mean, the constitution of the death penalty is a huge, huge deal. So uh, we're going to be involved in that. We're going to see where that goes. Um, I mentioned earlier on um, about the Pennsylvania State Police enforcing the immigration law, which it should not be doing. That's the province of the federal government mm -hmm. and cooperating with ICE. And so, you know, we're hopeful that Governor Wolf will do what he can, if he can, to put a stop to that. But, you know, we're going to be watching. Uh, and then if we need to intervene, then, then we'll do that. Mm -hmm. So that's one bucket. <laughs> Advocacy um, is a second bucket. And, and the Campaign for Smart Justice, um, I talked about that earlier. I don't think I identified what the goals of the campaign are, yeah, though. Yeah. And so there are two overarching goals, one of which is to reduce incarceration by 50 percent over the next several years. Um, and then also to combat racial disparities that run rampant in the criminal justice system. Yeah, we launched that. People are paying attention. And um, part of the focus is going to be on the on DAs, as I mentioned before, and then Allegheny County specifically. Just, just to be clear, we're not uh, in the business of favoring candidates or endorsing candidates. We just want the public to be informed about all of the various issues that uh, in, that that impact local communities, all the power that district attorneys have, mm -hmm. um, to be asking questions um, of them and, and holding them accountable. So um, I'm excited that our campaign, again, has been launched, but it's going to be spreading across the state. Um, we're going to be focusing on other things, too, not just the prosecut prosecutorial reform, but uh, probation and parole, sentencing reform, bail reform, so a number of a number of issues to again achieve those goals of a reduction in incarceration as well as uh, combating racial disparities. So the third bucket is legislative. I talked also earlier about um, how the legislature left alone mandatory minimums. <laughs> I don't know that we could continue to be so lucky that, that they are going to continue to leave that alone and my fear is that they won't and that they'll try to reintroduce those uh, mandatory minimums and that uh, we'll be ready for that fight um, should it come to pass. Senator Greenleaf, on another issue, introduced a model bill last session on how courts should handle fees and costs. Um, as it stands now, uh, many people are uh, incarcerated because they can't afford to pay fines and fees, which is actually against the law 
to uh, incarcerate people who can't afford to pay uh, fines, fees, and costs. Um, in particular, if you haven't done a hearing to, ter- to determine people's ability to pay. So, um, you know, we're going to be uh, ho- hoping that that legislation progresses um, and supporting it uh, if we can. And, you know, <laughs> given the nature of the Pennsylvania legislature, we're going to be on defense a lot. Um, reproductive rights, other things, you name it. So those are just a couple of things on the horizon. We're going to continue to work, as I said, on repro rights, LGBT equality, voting rights, immigration. You know, we're going to continue to be as busy as we were this year, frankly. So let me give you a chance to make your pitch. You're responsible for, uh, along with a lot of us on staff, for making sure this organization continues (laughs) to run and continues to be funded. You know, it's well known that we had a big boost in membership in February 2017. Um, At one point at our peak, we hit 60,000 members in Pennsylvania, which was the most we've ever had. So I want to give you a chance to make a pitch to several groups of people who may be listening to this. So let's start with the first group. People who donated in 2017 but haven't donated since. What's your pitch to them? It's real simple. Please donate again. (laughs) We need your support. I talked about the growth. We can't sustain that growth um, without your support. Not growth for growth's sakes, but growth in order to be able to take on all the challenges that we confront. So please donate again. All right. The second group, this may have a similar message, but these are folks. Make a pitch to people who care about civil liberties, who obviously are listening to this podcast, but they haven't gotten around to donating before. It's never too late to start today. (laughs) (laughs) Now is as good a time as any to start. You care about these issues. You can support them. You know, one of the fears that I have is that the outrages are so unrelenting that they become normalized. And to the extent that people stop responding because they're exhausted, they're afraid, whatever, then I think that slowly erodes at our democracy. And so not to guilt you, <laughs> but if you, if you feel strongly about preserving our democracy and supporting civil rights and civil liberties, and you haven't donated before, please start today. All right, and then the third group, what is your message to our members who donate every year? Love you guys. (laughs) Thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you for standing with us, for recognizing the value of our work. We couldn't do that work without you, so thank you, and please continue to give. All right, Reggie, well, thank you very much for taking the time for your work, for your support. Uh, Happy holidays, and I look forward to having you on the podcast again sometime in the future. Thank you, Andy. Happy holidays to you. Happy holidays to all the listeners, all of our supporters. I think you do a really good job of this podcast. I'm very proud of it. And so happy podcasting and 2019. Thank you. Thank you to Reggie Shuford for his time, his expertise, and his support. He's a big fan of this podcast, but more importantly, he is a fierce advocate for our rights, and we are grateful for his leadership. Since it is the end of the year, I want to lift up a few folks who have made this podcast possible. First, a special shout out to our editor, Amy Giacomucci. Amy came to us ready to help after the 2016 election. She told us that she had digital editing skills and was already producing podcasts, and her work makes each episode sound smooth. Literally, all I can do is turn on the microphone and upload files to a Google Drive. Amy does the rest. Thank you, Amy. 
Thank you to all of our guests who have been a part of the first 17 episodes of this adventure. I won't name them all. You can go back and listen to previous episodes. But thank you to all of our staff and allies and board members who have been a part of the pod. I hope we told your story the right way. Finally, thanks to you for listening to what we have to say each episode. I hope you find this podcast informative and thought-provoking and that it motivates you to action. We are going to take a break for the holidays and we'll be back in January. Happy holidays to you and yours. Until next time, be free. Be free.